This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkor, and more importantly, today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. David Brick, who is Assistant Professor of Sanskrit Literature at the University of Michigan. We'll be speaking about a brand new OUP uh, publication called Window, oh, sorry, Widows Under Hindu Law. Um, and this uh, publication is actually part of the Roche Indology series. And so we could talk maybe a bit about that as well. Uh, David, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks, Raj. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure indeed. This is, of course, a fascinating, um, uh, rich, uh, potentially even hot topic. Uh, Tell us a bit about how you got interested in this line of research. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, So, you know, the origins go back to a paper I wrote in grad school uh, that was not nothing to do with my dissertation. Um, but I was taking a class um, by uh, Cynthia Talbot, and it was on historiography in India, mostly looking at um, the construction of Indian history in the colonial and later periods, that sort of thing. Um, but for my um, top, for my like uh, final paper for the uh, the class, she suggested I write on Sati because it was his new book, uh, Contentious Traditions by Lata Mani on the topic. And it wasn't, I mean, it's not super new, but uh, less than 10 years old at the time. And um, I said, okay, I'll do this. And so I read it. I thought it was interesting. I still think it's interesting. But it got me thinking about um, classical Indian sources on the topic, because I would already was working on Dharma Shastra on Hindu law at that period, it did kind of uh, fledgling specialization. And I thought, oh, what do they have to say about it? I didn't really know. And so I, I did some research and, and found a kind of a very interesting uh, debate on, on sati or uh, widow self-immolation or whatever you want to call it in Sanskrit literature. And that's what I wrote the paper on then. And eventually that became an article that I published in uh, the Journal of the American Oriental Society not long after graduating. Um, and then that was kind of the beginning. And, and I initially had not thought of writing a book on this topic. Um, but it's sort of enough widow-related issues became important that it sort of started to feel like it could be a book. Um, 
And so that's one way of answering that question. You know, it's sort of I got into it by chance this way. Uh, the other reason I find it interesting, I think it sustained my interest, nothing to do with necessarily its origins, is um, I think if you want to understand um, the treatment of women, gender ideology uh, in kind of classical India, classical Hinduism, widows are a really good um, figure to study, uniquely good, because uh, there's clearly within the tradition a great deal of comfort with married women. Um, so this is the norm. You say, okay, a married woman's married, easy. We have kind of rules. We understand that. That's fine. And there's going to be little disagreements about things in the tradition, but it's pretty comfortable. Uh, and little girls who would also exist would be unmarried. They're also okay uh, because, you know, they're not yet marriageable age. And if you sort of at some point come to believe in child marriage, then marriage can be extended earlier into a life. And then you have that. Uh, but with widows, um, you have a class of women who are of marriageable age, but they're not married. Uh, that And they can't be avoided. Because you have the alternative with, with within Buddhism and Jainism, where you have women who renounce, become uh, monks or nuns, whatever you want to call them. Uh, but Hinduism generally doesn't allow that. Um, so you, but with widows, you have a class of women who are sort of outside of the controlling bonds of marriage that can't be avoided. You know, people, some women, many women outlive their husbands. And so how they deal with those, I think, is a really interesting test case on conflicts within the system, how they sort of deal with it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's absolutely. What um, what sources are you looking at? What's your data for the project? Yeah, I'm mostly, I mean, for this project, it's all Dharma Shastra texts, basically. That's the core. Because uh, I'm, I'm interested, in, I suppose, in tracing the treatment of widows within the Hindu legal tradition, within Dharma Shastra. That's not the complete scope of what I look at, because I look at um, other adjacent literatures um, outside of the Hindu legal tradition. It's not like a a strict line, like it's outside of that, I just don't look. Uh, but I, I, I would say it's much harder to do a systematic search outside of that, uh, referencing these things. And, and I haven't attempted that. But I do come across, I try to read pretty broadly. So there's things outside of the Hindu legal tradition that I'll look at and, and come across and say, oh, that's really interesting. I'll, I want to bring that in. Some stuff earlier, the Vedic period, uh, a lot of it just adjacent outside. Um, yeah, so like I've been in the book, at one point there's a Jain text that's really interesting, quite useful, because it appears that widows' inheritance rights increased at a certain point under Dharma Shastra rules. But the question is, does this reflect anything within society? Does it reflect any kind of big uh, social changes? But it happens that uh, there are Jain texts from about the 12th century, same period, that also talk about uh, widows' uh, inheritance rights increasing at exactly that same period. That's interesting to me. You say, wow, this looks like something going on in the real world outside of the text. Yeah, it's it's um it's really interesting that this uh, that your work, uh, this monograph is really the first comprehensive look at what uh, you know at everything that the Dharma Shastras have to say about uh, uh, widowhood. Um, and now I'm just before I dive into the heart of that project. Um, what else, um, you sort of a little tantalizing comment, what else might you perhaps look at or might one look at beyond the Dharma Shastra literature? You mentioned maybe Vedic texts. Uh, would one at all look at, 
epic traditions, uh, chronic traditions, where else might one look? Oh, beyond that, I mean, there's almost any place. The, the issue then becomes um, identifying irrelevant passages. It's not perhaps as easy to find. Also, there's not, Dharma Shastra has a decently, in my view, a decently clear-cut chronology of earlier to later, so you can trace developments in a way that's not, you don't have to dispute the kind of chronology of the text too much. Uh, I that is not the case with others, but but I think the Puranas you could do for sure, the epics for sure, uh, Vedic literature would be another one. Um, outside you can look at Jainism. All of those are possible. Each has their own problems, and it's not the case that Dharma Shastra is without. It's not a naked, transparent glimpse into social practice. Um, uh, so it's not, but neither are the epics. I think each has their own unique problems. I mean, the case of the epics and things like that, you always have the fundamental problem that people do things in stories that they don't do in real life, and everybody knows that. Mm. <laughs> you know, that's the issue. Uh, but same time, you have things that they do in stories that they do do in real life, and how to figure that out. And maybe you're not interested in real life, you're interested in narrative. That's okay, too. Uh, in the case of Dharma Shastra, you have your problems because it's I mean, there are prescriptions about how people should behave, but are they, were they followed? How, to what extent were they followed? And all those are, are, are uh, really tough questions. Indeed. And I speak from personal interest that one is either um, uh, courageous or, or or foolish to uh, study narrative. So I, I get it entirely. <laughs> um, tell us about uh, the prospect of remarriage, widows remarrying. When, uh, if at all, could widows remarry? Maybe talk a bit about your first chapter. Yeah. I mean, widow remarriage, for the most part, um, was seems to have been somewhat allowed in the Vedic period, the extent we have glimpses of it. I mean, the issue with the Vedic texts is they don't talk as uh, matter-of-factly in a kind of quite a sustained manner about these issues, so it's harder to piece together. But it appears that there was some remarriage at that period. Um, by the period of the Dharma Shastras, um, so the Dharma Sutras starting maybe 3rd century BCE is what we generally say, most of our texts oppose widow remarriage assume it's um, outlawed. That, of course, doesn't mean it didn't happen. Uh, I, I think there's evidence that it did happen. I mean, you get words like punarbu for a remarried woman, and they have laws for what do you do with the child of a remarried woman. Uh, so I have one wife who's never been married before. I have another wife who's been married before. Do the sons from the two different women have different inheritance rights? And they do, uh, which tells you this happened. Um, so there was remarriage. It was prohibited for the most part within Dharma Shastra literature from the get-go. Um, the big exception uh, are a few late texts, interestingly. Narada appears to have a somewhat permissive view of, of widow remarriage. And Parashara, a famously Parashara, um, because um, Parashara has a, a verse on it. And this becomes, interestingly, in the colonial period, this is not in the book, <laughs> exactly. But in the colonial period with Ishwar Chandra Vijayasagar, who's like the great uh, Hindu reformer on these issues for widow remarriage, uh, this verse of, of Parashara, uh, it becomes sort of his uh, central text in his argument for allowing widow remarriage from a kind of strictly Hindu theological point of view. He has other arguments in favor of it, too. Um, but for the most part, it's widow remarriage sort of is falling out of vote, even by the beginning of the tradition. And it's always a minority voice that allows widow remarriage 
and, and by the period of the commentaries, that's completely gone. Um, yeah. And widows inherit. And then it reasserts, you know, reemerges in the colonial period. Are widows allowed to inherit? And if so, under what conditions? Yeah, right. And this varies. This is one of the big, uh, I think, discoveries of the book is that uh, widow inheritance rights increase enormously um, over time. I mean, so the, again, we're talking largely about the Dharma Shastra tradition, but even if you go back to the Vedic period, there are uh, something from the Taittiriya Samhita that would lead you to think widows, women could not inherit property at that period. You can come to the early Dharma Shastra literature, it's more or less in keeping with that. Widows' uh, rights of inheritance are pretty negligible. Now, I say that not to make things too complicated. There is a class of wealth called stridhana, women's wealth, which women inherited. Um, and it was inherited kind of matrilineally from mother to daughter and so on and different. But that was uh, in kind of the grand scheme of things for a moderately well-to-do family, pretty insubstantial amount of wealth. Uh, so it would consist largely of movable property, jewelry and stuff, whereas the big items of wealth would have been land by this period. And women did not inherit their husband's property early on under any circumstance, um, pretty much. Um, then that changes with Narada. Uh, not Narada, Yagni Volkia. Uh, we generally date him about the 5th century or so of the common era at this point. Uh, and suddenly, uh, he won't say Narada, Yagni Volkia changes it. And he says, if a man dies without sons, his first heir is his wife. So his widow inherits his property, providing there are no sons. Uh, whereas before it would have gone anywhere patrilineally, but not to, to the women. Uh, and that changes with Yagni Volkia. He sort of inaugurates this move to make um, widows the primary heirs to a man if he dies without sons. Um, there's a, that, Then there's a big intense period of debate about this. Some are in favor of it, some are opposed to it within the Hindu legal tradition. And then it's really about the 12th century, maybe tail end of the 11th century, uh, that the kind of matter becomes settled and it's in favor of widows' rights of inheritance. So wi widows are allowed to inherit their husband's property with some minor qualifications, uh, if providing there's no sons involved. So yeah. in, in what it sounds like to be the majority of the situations, uh, at least within the texts where the widow does not have a right to inherit. So uh, in, individual uh, householder passes away and the um, the property and resources go elsewhere to the sons, etc. So what happens yeah, yeah. with the widow in that circumstance? So paint a picture. Supposed, what happens to her? It's supposed to be maintained in, in those periods. So if, if she has sons, her sons are supposed to take care of her, like their aging mother. Uh, and, you know, in an ideal world, she would be old uh, by this point. Uh, by the time she's widowed, but maybe not. Um, but the sons would take care of her. And if she didn't have sons in the kind of pre-widow inheritance uh, view, whoever inherited the husband's property, whatever man did, was supposed to maintain his wives, provide them for their maintenance. And some texts even get kind of specific about, this is all in the commentaries, about what, what precisely constitutes maintenance. Um, so they do. Uh, so it, it would normally be, say, if you didn't have a son in the old system, the early one, uh, my brothers would inherit my property, not my sons. If my if my, I didn't have sons, not my wife, my brothers, I mean, they would take care of. And if I don't have brothers, maybe my brother's sons. So it would go basically the same way as Shraddha writes, if you think about it this way, with the patrilineal system strictly. Um, and so property devolved exactly that way. Whereas that changes at a point 
And then I guess the, the, the obligation to support widows once they're able to inherit disappears because they have property. Um, but then there becomes so, limits on usage. So that's a whole different thing. <laughs> you mentioned in passing that one of the discoveries of the book uh, is, uh, you know, the situations where widows could inherit, etc. Is that um, is that what you found most surprising? What most struck you about this process uh, and your findings? Yeah, that was one that this um, that widows' inheritance rights increased. Though this was noted in a fashion by Otekar a long time ago. He has what's the title of his book? Women in Ancient India, maybe is what it's called. Anyways, it's something. But Ailes uh, Otekar noted this. His issue, so he kind of noted the outline. Um, in his work on this, um, the, the problem, from my perspective, though it's quite good, he was fundamentally right. His chronology of text was a little different. Um, so he still placed the Vishnu Dharma Sutra way earlier, whereas now I think it's pretty convincingly been placed in the 7th century. And then everything fits, because um, it does allow widows to inherit. So it's it's a post-Yagnivalkia text. Um, so he had some issues there. He doesn't really talk about the commentaries that much. So I wouldn't say I was entirely surprised, having read Altecar, that I found something similar. Uh, probably the most uh, unpleasant, but but uh, somewhat surprising finding of the book was that um, Sati, or Sahagamana, as they call it in Sanskrit, appears to have become popular in Brahmanical circles shortly following widows increasing inheritance rights. Um, so the first text to allow widows increased inheritance rights is Yagnivalkya, uh, Smriti, or Dharma Shastra, doesn't matter terms. Right after that, we first get Sati with Vishnu, who comes just afterwards. So Sati is introduced right after widows. And then, then there's a debate. The Mitakshara is sort of the first text to really grant widows um robust rights, first commentator, and he sort of ends the, not the first, he's sort of the definitive text. The Matakshara ends the discussion, and everybody afterwards more or less concedes the point. But the Matakshara's views on Sati are pretty ambivalent, it's kind of opposed, but afterwards, all opposition to Sati sort of disappears. And so that inheritance rights increase, and shortly followed by an increase in acceptance of Sati is is a pretty grim, uh, but that was, but that I think that's, uh, when you kind of map out the textual chronology and see positions, I think it's um, fairly inescapable. And perhaps for our, our more general audience, um, what is this thing called sati? Oh yeah, sorry if people that don't know. No, <laughs> I, I imagine most of, uh, yeah. most, so the, most, the, uh, most of the audience would be aware. Yeah, okay. so this is a practice where uh, Hindu widows could um, optionally um, ascend their husband's funeral pyres and kill themselves by uh, ascending the funeral pyre after the death of their husband. Um, and this was considered a meritorious act, um, never uh, required. It was always considered optional, with, at least within the texts. Um, and But it was considered sort of an especially meritorious option. Uh, it would always been a minority of women who did it. Um, it goes way back within the Indian tradition Um Back at least as far as some sections of the Mahabharata, even earlier, there's a few Greek references to it. But it appears to have initially been strictly a royal phenomenon, meaning queens. Rarely, but some queens would do this. Um, and then 
And this was quite common in lots of cultures, sort of early ones. Uh, you find this in, um, you know, pre-colonial West Africa. You find it in, in China, Egypt for kings. But then in India, at a certain point, it uh, takes a different turn. And this sort of practice of following into death uh, becomes potentially widespread so that not just the wife of a king could do this, but any wife in theory. Um yeah, and that's what we're able to track really with Dharma Shastra, is Brahmanical customs. When did Brahmins start to do this? Because kings, they're not terribly concerned with what royal, you know, the individual royal customs. And forget about the low classes. They're not really interested in the private practices and customs of the lower classes. So what they were about is almost, <laughs> yeah, is unknowable. Uh, from our sources maybe um I'm a bit out of your your research but i, I imagine there would be uh my purposely naive questions typically are questions i imagine that the audience may have so so do we have a sense of the state of this practice currently in india oh uh yeah well it's somewhat beyond my area i mean it's it was a famous example with rup kanwar in the 87 82 in the 80s there's a famous example where a woman did this in Rajasthan. It uh, got a lot of publicity. Since then, I'm not sure. I mean, in a nation of one point some billion people, uh, that maybe it happened somewhere. It wouldn't surprise with so many people, you know, because all kinds of things happen. Uh, but it's extremely rare. I mean, it's basically gone. Uh, it was ended, for the most part, um, in... With Ram Mohan Roy's reforms and his kind of challenge, I think 1819, is it, or 1817? So early in 19th century, it was sort of ended in British India, it carried on as an exceptional custom in certain uh, princely states in India. Those ended up disappearing too by the middle of the 19th century. And so it's been outlawed for uh, over two centuries now and is basically a gone practice, I mean, with, with the occasional freak. Um, <laughs> occurrence. But I think the tradition, you know, I, I think within India, it's a complicated issue of how to deal with this practice, not as something that anyone's, no, very few, almost no one is advocating this kind of to resuscitate this practice, but how do you deal with it? Um, which is, I think that's something I try to be sensitive to as a scholar to the to a point, but then you, you have to do your work. Um, because I don't want I don't want the book uh, to be taken as a an attempt to defame Hinduism or something, uh, which I can understand. Because um, maybe say, well, this is a, an unsavory part of uh, Hinduism's past that maybe people say, which would be forgotten and don't see the point in discussing it, uh, which I can I can sympathize with. Um, I don't fully agree with it, of course. Uh, but uh, but I can't. So I don't want to make I don't want to get the impression that the, my attempt is to defame Hinduism in this regard. Uh, I think it's an but I think it's the treatment of widows is important from a historical point of view for the reason that it it it's a good way to track changing gender ideologies how they change uh, because married women I think it's a much more stable concept and you'll get less shifting whereas widows I think really cause problems. What do you do with them? Uh, remarriage, is this an option? If it's not, what do we do? All these kinds of things. I, and this is why they were a big issue in the colonial period. It's not entirely a fabrication. Um, so, I, so yeah, so I'm sensitive to both. 
the attempt that I don't want mm. to. I don't know, but that's maybe not exactly what you asked. But but I think oh. that, that when you talk about these issues, uh, you know, the last thing I want is anybody to. I don't want anybody to feel like they should re- revive these practices. <laughs> Certainly not, <laughs> and I don't want anybody to feel that uh, you know uh, I have any ill will or an attempt to defame. But I, I would view the same way with Western practices. It's not as though. I don't know, you look at witch burning in the colonial period, and I think it's I, I think it's both wrong to deny it <laughs> and, and you know and and wrong to and problematic to, to celebrate it. Obviously. Yeah, to celebrate it, of course <laughs> it's problematic to celebrate it. You know, so I think it's just you've got to come to grips with certain things uh, in the past of any people that are maybe not you don't want those. Uh, around you wish they hadn't happened but you have to come to grips with them and well our job is to our job is to understand you're presenting your findings in terms of the portrayal and prescriptions of of widows in a particular uh, class of text that is you know particularly litigious and so our our job is to understand understand that's right understand other epochs we are not in my view, it's wise to understand them on their terms and not impose, uh, whether cultural or um, historical, contemporary. You know what? What you know? Which tradition under the sun is not replete with both uh, savory and unsavory delights <laughs> for yeah, us right. to sample? Exactly. Um, exactly. And great. so it's a question of understanding. Um, understanding. I think that's first to understand is the first goal and to do that you do have to uh, try to understand the authors for me it's texts the authors i I read on their terms uh first so tell us sorry go on please yeah then secondly is other stuff you know what i mean first understand the authors on their terms so what do we think i understand much of this will be conjecture but what do we how do we understand um the reception or audience uh, i'll ask you two questions and the questions are always meant to be generative there's nothing that i'm particularly looking for other than whatever comes out of your mouth wherever that may lead so what do we understand or what can we infer about the audience of these texts and do they have any bearing uh in 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 our present times in terms of uh, legal or social systems yeah, yeah. Um, so the audience for the texts, I mean, now it's a much diminished audience. But the audience when they were when Dharma Shastra was sort of a living tradition, um, would have been uh, kind of an elite group of Brahmin men, uh, almost entirely, with some elite non-Brahmins, perhaps also engaging in this discourse. Um, and but it would have been pan-Indian, uh, meaning this tradition spanned virtually the entirety of the Indian subcontinent. So people participated in it, but it would have been a very elite group educated in scholastic Sanskrit and all of the concepts involved there. Um, yeah, so I think that's the key with the audience there. In terms of their impact, uh, like how these, what did these people do with these texts? Uh, that's a tougher issue. Um, I think with with my understanding of Dharma Shastra that I kind of lay out the intro to the book, um, I think of it as a combination of, it's largely a scholastic tradition, I guess. That's what I should say first. But at the same time, it does have elements of practical law in there. 
but you have to understand that first, it's a scholastic tradition. So mo, if you pick up a Dharma Shastra text, much of what you'll find in there is there, not because um, the author at that time found these to be the most pressing legal issues in his real life. Uh, most of the contents are there because that's what the tradition talks about. And if you're writing a text in this genre, you talk about those things, whether they're relevant or not. So the example I, I give frequently is um, there's these pancha pancha nakas, the five five-nailed animals that you can eat. And, uh, you know, this starts early in the Dharma Shastra tradition and carries on. But by the Middle Ages, Brahmins couldn't eat any of these animals. No one was eating any of these things. It was largely vegetarian, and certainly eating five-nailed animals wasn't going to be eating monitor lizard or a porcupine or whatever. Uh, but they would still talk about it like it was something, like it was a pressing legal issue. They would have, and you know, but this was completely, you know, so if you read that text as, as contemporary at that time, you'd miss. No, they're talking about this because it's a scholastic tradition. That's why you talk. So a lot of Dharma Shastra is like that. To appreciate, and they won't say that, well, this is just scholastic stuff. You have to understand the tradition to understand. And by this point, this is not. But it doesn't mean everything was like that. There'll be other things that will be uh, pressing. So I, I kind of give a couple cases where I think you see things happen that indicate real change on the ground. One um, is uh, when a new topic is introduced, something without precedent. So when they first introduced the five five-nailed animals, I assume there was some place in India where People could eat these five five-nailed animals. Um, but then that just stays because that's part of the tradition. So when Vishnu introduces sati as a practice, uh, Vishnu Dharma Sutra we're talking about, uh, that's probably because it was something new. You know, he's not doing it because of tradition, because it wasn't there in the tradition. Why then? When and then so that's one case when something new comes in, that we're talking about something going on in the real world. The other one is when you have a radical change in position. So with inheritance rights. Prior, women could not inherit. Then, Yagnivalkya turns everything on its head, says they can. So, pride in the man not, doesn't have sons. Why that change? I think then, because something's really going on on the ground. So there's a couple cases, but you have to read them critically, each case. Is the person doing this because it's a scholastic thing, just going through the motions, or is there something else? And I think that's... Um, and then you can see cases where, uh, like I said, with the case of the Jainism, where you have... Um, Widow's inheritance rights increasing according to Dharma Shastra in about the 12th century. And you have giant texts talking about increasing inheritance rights from a totally different, unrelated perspective at the same time. That's a good, so that shows me something's going on. And in that case, I don't want to say that the Dharma Shastra, the changes in Dharma Shastra is the reason for the change of inheritance law, nor is it the Jain texts as a reason for the change in inheritance law. Inheritance law is changing and it's being reflected in different textual sources. That I think is the safest route rather than one being the cause and the other one. Instead, it's going on and we can see it in different sources. So that's why. Okay, but now the other question you had asked about was a relation, kind of relevance of these texts and this today uh, quite diminished, <laughs> of course, um, but, not, but not diminished to the point of um, complete oblivion. Um, so Hindu law, like under the British, these Hindu legal texts, the Dharma Shastra tradition was incorporated as kind of the private law for Hindus uh, under the British as when, when law became codified. And then it's been changed a lot for various reasons over time. But there's still a core 
of Hindu law in India that traces back to the Dharma Shastras that's there. And this does deal with things like inheritance, adoption, marriage laws. Um, so that's there. But I think the bigger legacy of Dharma Shastra is in um, all kinds of ritual customs that people still practice today, uh, dietary rules and these kinds of things. So people that you know, have rules of, of, you know, whose food you can eat. Uh, the menstruating woman doesn't cook in the home. It's pretty typical. Um, so these rules, where are these kind rules like this articulated in text? The Dharma Shastra texts are the texts that most clearly talk about these things. So a lot of these things you'll see in, in contemporary Hinduism um, involving purity rules and stuff are very similar to Dharma Shastra rules, some cases basically the same. If not, they're certainly in that family of resemblance. When it comes to funerary rites, and these, it's all very much in the Dharma Shastra vein. So a lot of that, in a lot of religious customs and practices, you see this. Um, and that's a big part of the Dharma Shastra. That has a legacy um, today, I would say. Um, yeah. Fascinating. You know, I I, I think you're you're right. Uh, uh, in that it's the phenomenon that occasions the text and not vice versa. And uh, to my mind, it's a, it's a common uh, unconscious pitfall that many scholars of Indic traditions fall into because of a, the emphasis on text as source in mm-hmm. Abrahamic traditions and also the very mode of scholarship, right? We're looking through text, we're looking at text, we're learning, you know, uh, how does one become a scholar irrespective of what one, one ends up studying one's doing ethnography even, one starts off by being rather bookish perhaps and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, looking to texts for knowledge. And so it really does seem to be the case in, in, in much of uh, South Asian um, uh, religiosity that the text represents the condensation of something that's happening on the ground and uh, the, a, a condensation thereof that itself is malleable and, mm-hmm. and, and amenable to, to innovation. And, and interpretation and so the, the, right. the very the very uh, notion and purpose of text as as we sort of unconsciously presume based on our own experiences uh, as western scholars uh, seems so different in the unique tradition to my mind yeah I, I think what you said is right also but to be fair um if you were to ask someone today uh like i'm trying to think of an example if you have uh durga puja or something okay you perform Durga Puja in the fall because that's when she killed Mahishasura? Or did Mahishasura, did she kill Mahishasura in the fall because that's when you perform Durga Puja? Right? The question is, and I would be inclined to view it the way you do, say, well, it was happening in the fall, therefore you date this, you know, there's this thing going on on the ground, and therefore our texts, our, we, our narratives explain a practice rather than the practice always deriving from the narrative say within narrative literature and i think but i think a lot of practitioners themselves would of course say the opposite the text predates the practice you know what I yes, mean? But, yes but yes but i think that's a great example uh uh insofar as uh you know the the, the it just so happens that my my dissertation my my doctoral work was on the devi mahatmya right so this is the first time we see the great goddess in all of Hindudom, and certainly people yeah. don't wake up 15 centuries ago-ish and be like, uh, "We need a divine great mother." Here we go. Yeah. Uh, clear. I mean, one has to surmise or deduce that that her 
her worship was so prevalent. She needed a Sanskrit text. People were people yeah. were worshiping the Greek goddess. Uh, you know, this is why in chapter twelve in the Palashruti it says, you know, uh, particularly the autumnal uh, festival. Someone would surmise yeah. the autumnal festival was happening for quite some time, just why they had to give her a text. Right, right. And yet, you're exactly right. Insofar as in the modern world, particularly in India, which has you know a legacy of a particular education system and a colonial legacy, but also mm-hmm. just um, whether someone's from Indic background or whatever background they're from in the modern world, let's go look at the book. Let's go buy a copy of the Bhagavad Gita. What does yeah, the text yeah. say? And unless you're studying in a living tradition you don't understand that the vast majority of teachings to this day are preserved in oral memory on, on whether it's yoga sutras, whether it's tantric texts, certainly whether it's the Bhagavad Gita, even the Devi Mahatma, unless you've had the experience of having had, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of exposition that is meant to supplement or complement what you see in the written text. Um, it, it is fascinating because you're absolutely right. The, I think the vast majority of Hindus would look to, you know, you know, <laughs> where can I find a copy yeah. of the Bhagavata Purana or the marketing Purana? What does, the what does it say in the Puranas? What does it say, quote unquote, in the Puranas? But, 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 but uh, I think many fail to understand that that is a relatively recent internalized bias. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, if, but if you look at, yeah, it is, I think, I don't know how recently internalized that is, but you're right. It is a bias. And it's also common sense. You know, you'd say, uh, did uh, someone come up with a text on making temples before temples existed? <laughs> that seems unlikely. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, it seems that people were building temples and then you come up with rules. It's not like someone imagined what temples would be like. But I guess the classic idea of Shastra presupposing a practice, which you see in certain branches, uh, you know, has that. But that's not, uh, that seems, uh, you know, we don't have to believe that. That's not, that doesn't make any sense. And But it's also, it's complicated. Because in the case of, of text Absolutely. And, and narratives, you can't have a synergistic thing or whatever, where there's, uh, the text reflects certain things because this is the practice, but then certain influential texts can steer practice in certain ways, which also happens. Um, so you can get both uh Text being influenced by practice and practice influence. But I guess this kind of simple world, uh, you can't have that, you know, this kind of messy world of interaction. And especially if texts like the Puranas are are written in a, a timeless idiom, and the Smritis are the same way. I mean, all the Dharma Shastras are. Uh, if it's all written in a timeless idiom, then you can't have a, a messy world of practice influencing texts and text influencing practice. Though surely this was what happened mm. <laughs> uh, you know in the real world i mean in the, you know you just when you write in a timeless idiom it can't be you know <laughs> it can't be that uh, you know contemporary practices in 12th century karnataka are influencing this or that you know that all kind of <laughs> indeed and i, I think that, that's the, what happens in the real world but it's not what you say and I, I think in the case of the puranas in particular and by virtue of the very name of the genre uh, ancient you know uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, tales tales of old that uh, they they uh, uh, they purposefully purposefully uh, elide historicity so as to present something that's eternally true right um, right so right what do you what do you hope um what do you hope folks would take away from uh widows under hindu law Oh, that's a good question. What are the things to take away? Um, I mean, I suppose um, I view it partially as a source book. So if you have questions about any of these things, 
you're looking at uh, you know more famous tr- discussions of sati in the contemporary context uh, or whatever issue remarriage that they can look to it and have a very detailed account that will give them a lot of background on these that's sort of a comprehensive take on any widow related issue that that they might find interesting um so that's partially i think a big chunk is a source book um the other things i suppose would be um the the idea that you can use hindu legal literature to trace changes in customs um that you really can if you look at uh if you read the text carefully and critically um slowly and painstakingly you can actually trace now i say hindu customs i really mean brahmin customs because uh, those are the ones we can trace and to what extent brahmin customs resemble the customs of non-brahmin hindus is well that's a tough one to know not unrelated not completely unrelated but neither are they the same uh, so that's a tough issue but that you can at least trace how brahmanical customs evolved uh with a remarkable degree of of specificity, if you read the text carefully, historically, we have this long... So that's another thing. Um, The other thing is the general problematic nature of widows, uh, that they were from from a kind of classical, brahmanical perspective. If I think, put on my mind, and I'm going to be a nice, like, uh, brahmanical jurist, uh, widows were a tough class of people. You, You can't legislate them away because there's no way to make it so that widows don't exist, because it's just going to happen that husbands die first, especially when the women are a lot younger, and men tend to die younger, uh, that you're going to have a lot of that. And you have a sort of uh, a rule against women's independence. What do you do? How do you deal with widows? You know, this is, I think, and that the tradition has, has struggled with that. And that's one of those generative tensions and so you can really see a lot of movement I, I think there's other areas within hinduism where you see kind of how do you how do they deal with this and then it produces a lot of discussion like i think incorporating asceticism incorporating celibate asceticism within the tradition how do you do that this is something that uh was not you know is natural like buddhism it's at the core in case of hinduism it's not and so how but at the same time it's part of it so how do you incorporate it how do you, you know, and I think uh, widows were a similar thing um, and how they do. It. And then there's competing imperatives with the case of widows, the, the imperative to procreate, the imperative to not have independent women and, you know, and, and marital fidelity uh, becomes. So if a husband dies and you don't have sons, is it fidelity to the deceased husband or the imperative to procreate that rules <laughs> you know and you see different answers at different points uh because these are both uh there so i think that's Indeed. why i think that yeah so i think that's why widows so that's why they're that's why to me they're an interesting group because i think there's a point where you can finally you can not finally it's one of the cases where you can really see a certain kind of axiomatic beliefs of the tradition come into conflict and they have to negotiate have to figure out which one takes primacy um uh so that's why yeah i guess those things but, and then the usefulness of Dharma Shastra to kind of record, to provide a history of Brahmanical practice, which, you know, it's a bit frustrating that we've stuck with only kind of elite practice, but you got to make peace with the sources you actually have. And 
you know, write the history we can write based upon the sources that actually exist, not the ones we wish existed. Absolutely. And it, it goes without saying, perhaps yet it's yet worth noting that uh, the very discussion, the very the very stance we see in the text, this idea of, well, widows are a real problem. A problem for whom? <laughs> a problem oh, yes. for this echo chamber of uh, elite Brahmanical men who um who are what are they they're they're pillars of a patriarchal system uh which control women and in particular women's sexuality and yeah. so i mean you certainly make this point i'm i'm certain you do in, in the book i think in your introduction but but this this um what we learn is we have much to learn from the content but also we have much to learn from the very echo chamber of of who this is for and 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 whose voice is important and, and who widows are a problem for, right? Yeah, I think you're entirely right. I think if we're talking about men, I, I, and the, the, to me, the whole discussion of widows is definitely from a male's perspective. I mean, I don't know the widows were a problem for themselves or whatever, but I think we're talking about an orthodox male Brahmin perspective, uh, and I think the fundamental problem with widows is one of social standing and reputation um that's how i perceive it anyways and this is where it gets more interpretive and i'm open to alternatives certainly on on that uh but i tend to think of it as uh that women the behavior of women with which you're associated um and really the perceived perception of women with which you're associated perception being as important as fact uh is a big thing to which men, these kind of men, could not be indifferent. It had a lot to do with your social standing and respectability. Um, you even see this most famously in the Ramayana, uh, when Rama's not a Brahmin, but uh, Rama rejects Sita the second time. Why? Not because of her infidelity. He has no doubt that she was perfectly faithful, but because the perception of her infidelity is simply damaging to reputation and this is something a man of his standing cannot uh, abide. You know, though he's, you know, in love and, and a person of good conscience, there's something, he's kind of a luxury he could not afford. Now, he's a king, and in a special circumstance, you could say. But still, I think this was a broadly applicable idea that, that men uh, could not afford to look like the women with whom they were associated were unchaste. Uh, because this was just very damaging to reputation. And so, and then of course, it's not just chased or unchaste, but that become can, you can get sort of an arms race, a competitive, <laughs> whose women are the more chaste? Why is that important? Because it says, which men are the more respectable and upstanding? And so you can get an arms race of competitive uh, sort of prestige hunting. The person, the, I'm not a big theory person at all. Uh, but the theorist that I, I liked on, on this, but the only one I really cite in the book, is uh, Sherry Ortner has this uh, bit on she, what she calls serious games, uh, which is, you know, that you have these kind of, uh, you know, uh, changes in life and competing for position and stuff. There's rules uh, in in different societies who have different rules as to how you play the game. And that um, people play these, but they're serious games in the sense that there's, uh, they're really important outcomes. They're not a game in the sense of uh, like uh, football or cricket or whatever. <laughs> the outcome is really, really serious, but that you play them through 
understanding the rules of society and trying to work in your favor. And I think that's, I think much of that's what's going on, that there's an attempt with women, which is why you get at some level an increase in control. Because if we accept that this is a, the level of control is an index of respectability, well, then if you want to look better than your neighbors, and who doesn't, you have to sort of, you know, and I think you get similar. I, I don't view this to me as a very foreign concept, like something at all unique to classical India or India in general. I, I think I see this kind of behavior all over in my own life. You know, uh, people that, I don't know, if you're really into organic food, then how do you get to be the most organic? How do you keep the most, you know, they get as strict as but only locally grown. And so there's a kind of competitive uh, you know, to be the most upstanding by this metric, because that's the community you belong to, and that's what matters. If you belong to a community where other things matter, you compete in that way. That's maybe the, the That's how I tend to view things. Indeed. Um, so, final question. Is this work that you're continuing somehow? What's next? What now? Oh, no, I think I've said my last bit about uh, widows, I guess. Is that true? Yeah, more or less. Um, my next, I mean, so that's, yeah, I think I've said my piece. I'll probably end up getting asked for little things, uh, but I think I'm done with that. My next project I plan, I want to write a history of vegetarianism. Um, that's kind of my next broader, uh, not a full-fledged history where I take into account everything, but at least a bit like this, where I look at uh, vegetarianism and its incorporation within Dharma Shastra as kind of an index for Brahmins. Um, so when did Brahmanical custom fully embrace vegetarianism? To what degree? You know, these sorts of things. Um, so that's what I. That's my next kind of thematic plan. And then I've got text editing. I, my next thing I'm going to come out with is uh, there's a common Dharma Shastra commentary that I'm working on. Uh, that's from at least the ninth century. It could be a little bit older, uh, so it's very old by Dharma Shastra commentary standards. And, and I'm coming, making an edition and translation of that. That's for sure the next thing. And then after that, I think a history of vegetarianism. But that's history yeah. of vegetarianism is way off in the future. But but I've thought about that. I think it's a good topic. You definitely have to send me that history of vegetarianism, whatever. It yeah, out. well, Dharma Shastra can be so boring, or it can be interesting. It just depends on what your uh, what aspects of the customs you're interested in. You know, so vegetarianism to me is a very interesting topic. I think a lot of people, hopefully, a lot of people will find that interesting. I think treatment of widows was an interesting topic, but there's other things in Dharma Shastra that maybe even I would struggle to find that interesting. I don't know history of teeth cleaning and stuff like that. They talk about that too. And I don't know, etiquette and teeth cleaning just doesn't interest me. <laughs> so that kind of, so there's areas you could go into, which I would, many people maybe would find boring, but I try to write on topics that are of a bit better interest, you know, uh, you know, and then also, also controversial within the tradition, because then that gets a lot, a lot more interesting. What was the tradition struggling with you know if it's something where they all have consensus oh, that's kind of boring forever and ever but the stuff where the tradition had a point where they really disagreed that's i think fun <laughs> and then you oh. see okay they disagree here there's there's some arguments they why they disagree you know well without question issues such as sati and which animals one can and cannot eat are not issues that are only um 
controversial in our day and age. I mean, these, oh, are, right. these, are, yes. these are tensions within tradition. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Of course, it wouldn't matter the same, I suppose, in like a Western context when, you know, killing and eating almost anything, except for a dog or a horse, I guess. It's okay. You know, so there's not like, uh, <laughs> there's not, you know, you'd have to look at other things. What, what's the, what are they concerned about there? Uh, but I think within the classical Indian tradition, yeah, this is for sure vegetarian. And then also vegetarianism becoming so much more popular today, I think is something that uh, even, you know, uh, students with no personal connection to India can find interesting. Uh, that's, uh, that's my hope. And hopefully it will be that in a way that's also just perfectly philologically rigorous and uh, hopefully, at the same time, not too boring to kind of regular readers. Well, listen, I mean, <laughs> to my mind, that's the that's that's the um, that's the unicorn that we aspire after. Something that's philologically rigorous, or you know, intellectually rigorous at very least, and also um, accessible and interesting to. Uh, yeah. to, to those who are beyond the 12 people in our niche, right? <laughs> yeah, right. So that's the hope with these, uh, with the next one. But I imagine something similar-ish to Widows Under Hindu Law. I just don't know, but but for vegetarianism in terms of style and approach. But we'll see. I really have to look at it. It's really in its infancy, uh, this project. So I've looked at it and think it's, yeah, it, it's going to be a fun project when I get around to it. Fantastic. Well, thank you for appearing on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. You're most welcome. Uh, for those listening, of course, we've been speaking with Dr. David Brick on a brand new publication, Window, Widow, saying Windows. I have many windows open. Widows under Hindu law. Uh, until next time, keep listening. Uh, keep, um, keep well, keep sane, keep thinking, and keep contemplating widowhood and whether or not it's a problem for anybody. Take care.